six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 213. And it has cleared the tower. Prepare yourself for a world of sacrifices. Good morning, everybody. Brand spanking new episode of the Science Night in the morning. And uh, I'm your host, Conley Razor. And I have on the horn with me Dr. Sean Graham, who is uh, calling in all the way from down under. Sean, what's up, man? Hey, Conley, what's going on? What's going on, all you Science Nights fans? Sorry, we've been uh, on a bit of a hiatus lately, but uh, it's good to be back. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, um, you're you're in the midst, I guess. In what what did you call it in the midst or in the process of actually writing about North American deserts? That's our topic today. We're going to deep dive into it, but uh, we're also going to deep dive into the writing process, too. You're, you're like publishing books like right and left here. What's up with that? That's cool. I'm I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like uh, right now the process of publishing is is the only thing slowing me down. I I, <laughs> I write pretty fast. I've got I've got one kind of always have one in the can, one in the process of being published, and then I'm working on a new one as as we speak. And so I really enjoy I really enjoy writing. Um, and so I know a lot of people find it really hard and 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 difficult and. Um, to me, it's just a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, I can, I can write all the time and I'm in the middle of one and, you know, I didn't, I didn't really want to call in to just talk about my book and writing and, and as like a giant advertisement, No, no, I thought no, no, we no. could talk about the North, North American deserts. And especially cause I'm in the middle of writing that one right now, a, a book about the North American deserts. And so I feel like I could just talk about North American deserts for weeks and weeks at a time. So it'd be a super easy, fun show to talk about. Yeah, and informative. And I'm looking forward to getting into that topic. Uh, and it kind of gives me a, a bucket list. To, I'm going to be taking notes during this episode because I want to okay. know where I want to go visit. I love the desert. We're, we live here in Alpine because we love the desert. And uh, yeah, exactly. to know about more than just the ones we're familiar with and also maybe some you know, you'll learn today a few things you didn't know about this area, too. But before we get into that, Dr. Sean Graham, I got to ask, how much how much more different do you think? And, and you've been under the tutelage of many, many pro brilliant professors uh, throughout your academic career, I'm sure. But mm -hmm. my question is, how much more different would it be if you didn't have the Internet to write? Oh yeah, that's that's great, Conley. Because I've been, especially where I'm at right now, because you know I fled the United States. I'm in Australia now, and so I I brought a big portion of my library with me. All my desert books are here, um, but I am actually. It's amazing how isolated I am um, from the rest of the stuff that I need. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I I always knocked Sol Ross's library when I was there um, because it's so puny. But man, their desert collection is actually really freaking good. And there's a bunch of stuff that I need from that library right now that I, I can't get. And honestly, I can't get them anywhere in this country. In inner library you know, alone, man. No, that, I mean, there is no such thing. Uh, oh. They've got, they, they've got not, not that reaches that far, 
you know um i've, I'm not I've sent one to china before I I, i'm not affiliated with the university here oh yeah and that's and and none, like you can't just go to the public library down the street and expect them to send you you know some book and imagine it being from australia uh, what would they need a book about the arizona deserts for mm. you know right uh so they're uh, they've got a national library here in canberra in the capital that i assume is like the library of congress you know where they've got everything yeah but and i looked in their catalog and they've actually got a couple of things that i need but the whole country's shut down right now and they don't do interlibrary loan to just you know mm. dubbo public library so i'm i'm like i'm looking at either just buying that book like an old copy of that book on amazon and then having it shipped here for a cool hundred dollars each whoa you know because the yeah. shipping's so expensive yeah or I'm looking at uh, just not not having all the references that I probably should have in my book. So I, yeah, I'm really struggling with that right now. But to your point, I can get a lot off the internet, and that's amazing, especially old stuff. Like uh, I'm I'm what I'm working on right now is focusing on super old references that are like in the public domain, and that stuff's amazing stuff. You know, <laughs> travelers from the 1820s, 18 like you know uh uh the, these these people who first explored the deserts uh that stuff's freely available i don't like to read stuff online you know it's it's hard for me i'd rather have the hard copy but if there's no other choice then you can get you know zebulon's pipe zebulon pike explored uh you know colorado and new mexico and um these places like that right right on the heels of lewis and clark just like a decade later um and he he saw many of these places you know as an american i mean there obviously there were spanish travelers before that and and that and, and that kind of thing but you know uh some of these old accounts are freely available and, and they're really well written you know zebulon pike was a literate dude and he could write well and it's just amazing to see and read about these places from some of those um you know first explorers and you can get all that stuff uh online for free as pdfs it's just great stuff well the wonders of the inner interwebs is making yeah. your life a lot easier all of our lives easier and a little bit yeah. more hectic if you think about it but um sure. uh that's interesting so it, 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 as an uh uh ancestral uh, uh academic you would literally mm -hmm. devote all your time in the library probably Instead yeah of just I, i'm zooming, pretty old school and cruising and online well, that's yeah so you were you were asking me earlier kind of like you'd like to get into the process of how i write and i can tell you it's very very simple um i read and then i write that's it mm -hmm. i read i gobble up everything i read a ton of stuff about whatever i, I you know whatever my chapter is going to be about uh i might spend months reading mm -hmm. um everything i can find and then i just let it kind of distill in my brain and then i sit down and write do you structure the book? Is there an outline before, like yeah, preemptively yeah. before you even start reading? Do you kind of set out yeah. what your whole thesis is? Do you know your thesis? Um, well, or I do mean, you find that at the end? You kind of have no, a loose I mean, one right now, and then at the end you have your thesis? Well, it's, you know, it's I wouldn't say there's a thesis. It's just the North American deserts is the topic. Right. So, oh, okay. you know, how do, how do you talk about the, uh, how do you talk about that topic? And, right. you know, and, and generally kind of, What's the basic structure? I've got all that, had all that at the very beginning. You know, I kind of thought of it and I was like, yeah, that will work. 
Um, and it's pretty, it lends itself for a pretty easy structure because it's like, you know, introduction, you just talk about deserts and what, what kind of climatic features, uh, and global climate factors cause deserts. That's the introduction. Boom. Uh, and then you talk about like landforms, desert landforms. How do they form? What do we know about that? So like the, uh, the basic, what we'd call abiotic factors, the non-biological uh, things that influence deserts. And then you talk about plants and animals, their adaptations to desert, and then you're off to the races. The next several chapters talk about each desert individually. And then that's where I'm at right now. I'm kind of in the home stretch. I'm, I'm going to be done with that soon. And then I've got a chapter in mind about you know, like how humans uh, interact with the desert, you know, Native Americans, and, and then, uh, you know, a, a chapter to end it all about our modern, how modern humans are affecting the desert, um, you know, conservation, that kind of thing. Yeah, conservation, preservation. Yeah. Um, so yeah. let, let's get, let's deep dive. Let's deep dive into uh, this topic, North American yeah. deserts. But before, okay, so we're going to get there. Let, let's start off with this question. There is something common to all deserts, and that, to my knowledge, is the scarcity of water. Is that correct? That is, that's pretty much what it all comes down to. That's, that's the best way to define a desert. And you know, it's funny, you can get into like all these weird ways that like geographers and ecologists and other people will define a desert. I'll give you a good example. You, you know, you'll hear some people talk about um, what's the world's largest desert. That's a trivia question. Sahara. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It's it, the Sahara is about the size of the United States <laughs> as the lower 48. And it's, and it's got huge sections that are e way more dry than the driest place in North America. Like half of the Sahara is as arid as death Valley. Half wow. of Jeez. So half of the lower 48, but then you'll hear some people say, no, not the largest desert in the world is Antarctica. Oh, God. And it's like, because Antarctica receives no rainfall. Right. But that's so that's not the same thing, though, because it does receive precipitation. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get into trouble with some of these definitions. And that's where, you know, th this other definition of a desert is where like evaporation exceeds rainfall. Right. Okay. By a large degree. And yeah. that, that's, that's what you're getting at. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a dryness. It's aridity. And where evaporation exceeds rainfall, that's where you have what most people in their mind have pictured as a desert where it's like. You know, very little plant growth can be hot, can be cold, can be cold in the wintertime. But as long as uh, evaporation uh, exceeds rainfall, you're going to end up with this thing that most people think of as a desert. And that's where the Antarctic gets disqualified because it's it, the sun shines so little in Antarctica, there's basically never any evaporation. That's why, you know, the snow that can be there, it's true, might have fallen, uh, you know, 20,000 years ago to make the ice pack in Antarctica and it still hasn't evaporated. It hasn't gone anywhere because the sun just never shines there. It can't evaporate anything. It's a different place, a very different place than what most people think of as desert. You know, you could just as easily define parts of the ocean as a desert by using that same, uh, you know, yeah, construct kind of. that you would define in Antarctica. Because there's hard, huge areas of the subtropics of the ocean where it hardly ever rains they're adjacent to the desert they're just as much of a desert but it's the ocean yeah. so it's like come on we're not going to call the subtropical oceans deserts because it doesn't rain there it's stupid yeah. so 
you go with this other definition and you end up with, you know, a good common sense definition. And our deserts um, in North America do fit that definition. You know, the, uh, the, it, our, our deserts receive a little bit more rainfall than, than a lot of the places in the old world, like Africa. Uh, the Eurasian deserts are considerably more dry than ours. And so old world geographers uh, often kind of laugh at what we call a desert in North America. There's this hilarious anecdote by an Egyptian uh, ecologist who visited North America, who visited Tucson. <laughs> and he's like, this is not a desert. This is a, a, a botanical garden you're talking about here. Yeah, it's nothing like the Sahara, uh, but you know, you got to draw the line somewhere. And of course, within that definition of a desert, you know, receiving about 10 inches of rain or less a year, evaporation exceeding rainfall, you're going to have some variation there. And we just happen to, North American deserts happen to be on the upper end of that scale yeah. where we, it's super dry, but it does support vegetation. Australia's deserts are the same way. There's hardly any place in Australia where there's not some vegetation because it does, it does rain enough to support vegetation. We do have a few places that are hyper arid where very little vegetation grows. Uh, Death Valley the Grand Desierto is huge sand dune complex in northern Sonora. These are the driest deserts we have, and they're formidable, really dry deserts that are uh, similar in many respects to those old world deserts. We got a good variety. We got we got kind of both ends of the scale. We got mm -hmm. some places like Tucson, the giant saguaro forests that are very nearly outside of what most people would define as a desert. I mean, if you've got trees growing in your desert. As weird as they are, the giant saguaro is a tree. It's a tree cactus. You got some other trees, Palo Verdes. I mean, if you got trees growing in your desert, you really need to wonder about whether or not you've misclassified this place. It's too lush, maybe. It's right on the edge. That does, you know, it's not its fault. It's on the edge of our human definition of what a desert is. It's, it just makes it more interesting, I think. Sure. Well, okay, so before we start, I think we'll wait until after the break to start the bucket list of, like, where to go and, like, what makes these different deserts in North America <laughs> unique. Good idea. We have Good about, idea. yeah, we have about seven minutes left in the segment. One thing I'd like you to touch on, though, is that mm -hmm. the flora and fauna in these deserts, they're so unique because yeah. these animals are they have to find creative ways to survive same with the plants they have to You're find right. creative in you know we're talk uh we, we've talked before about nursing plants and mm -hmm. uh y y there's a lot of different really interesting cactus in these deserts and there's a lot of really interesting animals can you touch on what why is that why why are these animals not only very uh, attracted to this type of climate and lifestyle it's not like they they can't migrate and go somewhere else but they live there that's their home but it's changed their evolution in a lot of ways too the plants and animals yeah yeah i think that's you you've nailed so one of the things i love most about the desert is um that the adaptations of the plants and animals are kind of obvious what they're about they, they they're not they're overt. They're very honest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because like in other places, the tropical rainforest, deciduous forests, you name it, grasslands, adaptations of plants and animals might be subtle. They might be that, you know, the big deciding factors of what, what 
what is going to live in a grassland or in a forest might be interactions with other plants and animals, right? Mm-hmm. That might be yeah. what's driving things. Uh, so you might have all kinds of really cool things like camouflage to match grass stems. Who knows? But in the desert, it's less about interactions between animals and plants, and it all comes down to water, like you said. Mm-hmm. And so almost every adaptation you find in the desert, uh, there are plenty of other kinds, but you're going to find these super overt adaptations to reduce water loss, to conserve water that are just really overt and, and, and really easy for anybody to understand. So it's like it's a perfect place to take like students or children to go and talk about these kinds of things because it's super obvious. Like you go up and you go this cactus, you know, 80 percent of its tissues are water storage tissues right and so this you know a camel's hump doesn't actually have water in it that's a that's a myth you know perpetuated by looney tunes cartoons but the cactus being a reservoir for water it's not quite like the cartoon where you can just cut it open and drink out of it but that water storage tissue truly is that's what it's about it it, that cactus can can kind of draw on that stored water for months and then they've got these shallow root systems that as soon as it rains, they can right, stop it back shallow. up and they can expand and, and, and then uh, refill their supply. And, so, and it's just so cool that it's just <laughs> sitting right in front of you there. You can even watch them shrivel up. You know, some of the cacti in the southwest, I'm thinking of one called beaver tail cactus that lives mostly in the Mojave Desert. And it shrivels up. It looks like kind of a, <laughs> a shriveled up scrotum. I can't think of a better way to describe it. <laughs> But it, it, it shrivels up, and so you can almost tell how long it's been since it rained based on how uh, scrotal your beaver tail cactus looks. Beaver tail cactus, you heard it here first, everybody. Uh, <laughs> go and uh, just imagine away. But uh, yep. but you brought up something interesting. So we have cottonwoods out here, and yeah. cottonwoods are, they love the water. They want more yeah, water. Yeah. They it, So would you say that, Cottonwoods just first off being here present in the desert, mainly around water, abundant water sources, right? Rivers, lakes and stuff Uh, versus uh, like a a resurrection plant. Okay. Yeah. That really can, it is designed to conserve, right? And maximize every single molecule in that drop of water it might receive, which is more efficient and evolved really like would you yeah. say <laughs> that's a good question yeah so cottonwoods kind of are um are breaking the rules and you can really think of a cottonwood more as, as an oasis species than a real a true desert species oh okay they do have they do have one adaptation that kind of suits them for that role in our area and that's this huge deep taproot that they have so they're what you call a phreatophyte, which is one of these sweet, awesome botanical technical terms for a, a plant with a super deep taproot that can uh, reach super far down to the water table. Um, and so they can, as long as there's some moisture in these old arroyos or around a water source, they're really good at efficiently um, getting that water from that little oasis to the exclusion of everything else. So they're good competitors for that water. They got that deep taproot and they can, they, if, so if anything else is growing there with them, the cottonwood will get it. But besides that, they're wasting water. They yeah. got all those big leaves. They're just sitting there. They can cool themselves by evaporating the leaves. So they're, they're, they're just amazing at, at living. But, you know, try growing a cottonwood anywhere outside of an oasis and it's doomed. Whereas your right. res- resurrection plant, 
can grow on the dry face of a limestone rock. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? And, and just uh, r- restore its uh, body functions as soon as it rains and then die back nearly, you know, it truly enters a state of suspended animation. Wow. Like science fiction. It just, it just uh, dries up and it should be dead. It, it, all of its life functions have ceased. But if you pour water on it, it grows back. Those are really cool adaptations. It's a neat one that we have locally that's kind of endemic to the Chihuahuan Desert, those resurrection plants. Mm. So you, you really nailed something there, Conley. You kind of hit two sides of the coin. You can, you can be this water user, yeah. a water exploiter, and as right. long as you can find water, a cottonwood can grow, and they do really good in that kind of situation. Or you can be this like super, uh, you know, a savvy sort of um, austere plant that can just stay dry for a long time and do it that way. You can't, I, there's very few plants that can kind of do both. Right. You kind of yeah. have to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I was, the analogy I used is like, you know, a four wheel drive vehicle is great in the desert. You often need one. You need to lower your tie pressure if you're driving on sand dunes. But you know what? terrible if you're trying to drive across the country sure. on a internet interstate highway yeah you, you're going to waste gas mileage uh you, that tire pressure could come uh, you you could wreck your tires that way so you you can't you can't do both you can't have the uh you know the acura sedan that might have good gas mileage and drive you across the country on interstate highways real well and you can't be a four-wheel drive truck uh, a dune buggy at the same time and that's what these desert plants don't think of them as necessarily perfectly adapted to their environment, but they've just made that trade-off where they've they've uh, given up the lifestyle of normal plants that might live in a meadow or a forest to be able to survive in the desert. Mm, wow. Yeah, so th- th- there's a real dichotomy right there. You know, there's a big difference. Uh, and I guess it, it's um, the resources available. So maybe the absence, that's what makes these deserts. We're about to go to a break, but uh, that's what makes all these deserts really unique is that adaptive type lifestyle that they are constantly uh, on the edge of death, almost, it seems. And they've yeah. adapted so well that they become these interesting and unique uh, species, which is so cool. I love it. So after the break, we're going to go, we're going to get our notebook out <laughs> and we're going to start checking off uh, some list. cool. Yeah, the bucket list of North American deserts. Is that sound okay with you, Dr. Sean? I can't wait. This is such a good idea, and I (laughs) I can't wait to reveal the places people should see. All right. We'll see you right after the break. Don't touch that dial. It's Conley and Sean here, Science Night in the Morning. All right. We're back. Dr. Sean Graham, I hope you have your notebook uh, ready. And not only you, but I, uh, I know our listeners are going to be taking notes during this segment. And uh, I know I will. I got my uh, my sheet of paper right here. You can hear that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I got my your, I got my pen. Notebook, get your notebook and your Rand McNally Atlas. <laughs> and put, get ready with some pins. You're going to push some pins on some mats. All yeah. right, man. Dude, I'm going to wrap some yarn across every single pin there and like go. connect them. So we're going to get we're going to get real here. So all right, let's start from the east coast or do you want to start from the west coast which one let's yeah i think the east coast like we can start if you start from the east coast you're basically starting where where our listening audience is so 
you you drive if you're driving from New Orleans and you're trying to get to the desert, the first desert you're gonna see is the Tuolumne Desert, um, and that's in our neck of the woods. As soon as you cross the Pecos River, basically, um, you'll notice the changes in the vegetation that you might see. You know, out near Del Rio, you're gonna see a lot of shrubs and cactus um, long before you get to the Pecos River. But once you cross the Pecos, you're gonna see that your shrubs and cacti become widely spaced with a lot of bare ground between them and mm. then you're kind of then you're really at an area where climatically you're getting it maybe only 10 inches of rain a year and you're in the Chihuahuan desert you're going to see all of the all-star plants that most of our listeners are familiar with lechuguilla uh sotol uh, lots of prickly pear cactus <clears throat> if you're really good you can get on your hands and knees and crawl and find your tiny little uh you know peyote <clears throat> those tiny little cacti you know, well, that's the one thing that's kind of cool about the Chihuahuan Desert. It's subtle. A lot of people don't like the Chihuahuan Desert. They think it's boring because they can't see the, the true diversity that is here. But it is the most diverse North American desert. It's more diverse than the Sonoran Desert um, in Arizona that everybody kind of talks so much about. <clears throat> and, it, and a lot of the diversity is these tiny little cacti species that are really hard to find. And there's just tons of them, dozens and dozens of tiny cacti like uh, peyote that you have to kind of train yourself to look at. Um, but the place in the Chihuahuan Desert, I'm going to recommend everybody go. <clears throat> Obviously, the place that everyone goes is Big Bend National Park, and everybody's been there. Um, and it is amazing. But I'm going to recommend you um, get some bravery, uh, fill up the gas tank, get your passport ready, and cross the river. And you don't have to go far. But if you can make it to the Madeiras del Carmen uh, conservation area just south of the border on the other side of the river from Big Bend, you'll see that um, the Chihuahuan Desert really starts to achieve an amazing grandeur when you get into Mexico. You know, only about one fourth of the Chihuahuan Desert is north of the Rio Grande. The rest of it is in Mexico. <clears throat> Another reason why a lot of people uh, think it's boring is because the Chihuahuan Desert doesn't have as many of these huge charismatic plants like the giant saguaro or the mm. Joshua tree, which typify some of these other deserts. But south of the border, it does. And, you know, this cactus or sorry, this yucca that we have that grows on our campus at Sol Ross and along the highways in West Texas, this huge tree uh, yucca called giant dagger, <coughs> pardon me, is really common south of the border. And it grows in huge forests, like the Joshua trees, just over the border in Mexico. And so if you drive, it takes you forever to get there. But if you if you're, um, you know, want to be super intrepid, get some friends together and go down to Mexico, um, uh, south of the border, you will see some pretty astonishing desert environments. And they're not that far away. It just takes a long time to get there. But distance wise, it's very close. Wow. So, uh, okay. That's your first stop. That's our first stop. stop. We got our passport. We got plenty of water, a lot of water. Got to have a lot of water. A lot of water, extra fuel. Like we were talking about the trade-off, desert traveling requires a a lot of fuel. So take extra fuel, take extra water, and go down and see the giant dagger forests. And then get back in your car, cross back over our side of the border. Uh, From where? To... 
yeah, if you if you you know if you're down there, you could cross back in Presidio or you go up to Juarez and cross there, whatever you want to do. But you want to go start heading west and uh, get out of Texas, and you'll drive all the way across New Mexico <laughs> until you get Arizona, and then you'll pick up the next North American desert, which would be the Sonoran Desert. Mm. And uh, in the as soon as you get to the Tucson area, you'll start seeing your giant saguaro cactus. There um, it is. This, you know, 60 foot tall giant cacti that are just unbelievably amazing. Um, you know, a lot of the diversity that is in the Sonoran Desert, and there are places where the Sonoran Desert does beat the Chihuahuan. And, you know, one of, one of the ones you can just think of right away is the Sonoran Desert has um, more birds than the Chihuahuan. Hmm. And the reason for that is, boom, right there, that cactus. It's because it's a tree. You know, giant dagger is also a tree, um, but it doesn't actually, you know, the number of birds breeding in giant dagger yucca in the Chihuahua Desert hasn't really been studied. There's a lot of birds that will nest in it and, you know, carve out holes in it and and nest inside of it. But we know how many species are associated with the giant saguaro. There's two woodpecker species that carve holes in the giant saguaro. And other birds use their old holes for nesting. Other birds nest on top of the cactus and in little nooks and crannies of the cactus. And so just just like that, because you have the addition of that unique and very iconic species of cactus and many other trees as well, the Sonoran Desert immediately has uh, at least a good, you know, depending on the site you visit, maybe an an additional eight to ten species of birds nesting there that Uh you would have in the Chihuahua Desert. And so in that respect, it's, it's, it's got us on that because it's got this amazing cactus, many other species, a lot of really cool reptiles and amphibians, you know, the Gila monster, the venomous lizard is there. It's there. It's, got a, it's there. It's pretty much only there. I mean, it, uh, the Gila monsters range extends out from the Sonoran desert a little bit into the Mojave, but its center of distribution is, is the Sonoran desert in Arizona and Sonora, Mexico. Wow. And, okay. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, many unique species, very cool. And, you know, it's one of these things where you, you go there and it definitely has a distinctive vibe compared yeah. to what you're used to with the Chihuahuan Desert. You're like, this, this place is different. It's got a lot of unique things going on. Yeah, and Arizona so, roads are terrible, too. <laughs> yeah, so and it, to see the Sonoran Desert, it, it's, it's one of these uh, deserts that's super accessible. You know, because Tucson, it's a Decent sized town, nice town, and it's surrounded by this desert. Two, uh, the Saguaro National Park, super easy to visit. And there's uh, two, one of these interesting parks where there's two, uh, two districts. There's one on the east side of town, one on the west side of town. And so uh, you can visit that national park, go hiking, see all that stuff, and it's super accessible. You can you know, those woodpeckers that you see nesting in the giant saguaro, if you go pretty much any time of year, you're guaranteed to see them popping in and out of those holes. It's really great. Cool. Cool. So, so where are we, so where we're, are we in, we're in Arizona now. So, yeah, we're in Arizona. I got so my bumper stickers. Off. I got a magnet for my uh, refrigerator. There you go. You can, there's lots of fun kind of uh, goofy stuff to see in Arizona too. You know, along the way, you'll see the, 
what is it billboards i think oh yeah i know yeah i know i saw plenty of those when i was bumping yeah. on those terrible roads they have but. yeah there's some good stuff like that to see it's uh corny things oh yeah and, and there's guess- a there's always a pointer like a finger pointing to take this random road like into the middle of nowhere to see like this dead carcass like that has yeah. been mummified and you're like what that's it that's the what is it it's a yeah it's a mummified thing yeah I think, I think that thing has turned up on our bug. shows before i think I so spirit eye cave it probably came out of but <laughs> yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right so uh if you're in arizona i would highly recommend if you've never gone to drive north from tucson and go to the grand canyon there you go the grand canyon is really cool and as if you feel up to it so the grand canyon is this really interesting you know you might have heard of the way that climate and elevation affects vegetation and like if you go up a mountain at the base of the mountain you can be like in the low desert and at the top of the mountain it can be like arctic tundra and and a and a walk up a mountain like a kilometer up a mountain is like walking 10,000 kilometers to the north in Canada not 10,000 but 1,000 kilometers there's interesting elevational changes in vegetation and you in the grand canyon that's all inverted where at the top you're kind of in this pinyon juniper forest the semi-arid woodland type and as you walk down the canyon you walk down into the desert and in the grand canyon it's almost like you have two deserts stacked on top of each other uh the great basin desert (laughs) is the desert that kind of starts in that area and extends north and it's our north america's only cold desert what they call a desert where most of the precipitation uh, falls during the winter, and it's actually uh, mostly snow. Uh, that's most of the precipitation the Great Basin Desert receives. And that desert extends from you know northern Arizona up into Nevada, Utah, southeastern Oregon. And it's a very kind of <clears throat> almost, if, if anybody calls the Chihuahuan Desert boring, then they've got nothing on the Great Basin Desert because the Great Basin Desert is truly uh, very a very simple desert type. It's got just a handful of shrubs that dominate, mostly sagebrush. They call it the sagebrush ocean. Uh, and for miles and miles and miles, you'll see nothing but sagebrush. And in some ways, it's it, it, it's weird and it's boring that way, but it's also kind of cool because it's this it's got this kind of somber, venerable appearance. And in the in the in the in the four corner states, the Great Basin Desert truly reaches this kind of beautiful uh, uh, landscape because you have all of the the canyon country and all those amazing rock features of the Four Corners are converging with this simple vegetation type Mm. to give you these classic, amazing American landscapes. Wow. And so if you walk down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, it gets to be a hot desert at the bottom. It's, you don't get any snow down there, and it's more or less kind of a Mojave Desert down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, so you get one on top of the other. You get, you start at the top with woodland, you go down into Great Basin, cold desert, and then whenever you get to the very bottom, you're in more or less this kind of Mojave Desert scrub. You can get creosote down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, even uh, Joshua trees in some areas. Hmm. But if you really want to see it, like the best place to see the Great Basin Desert, um, you know, is that canyon country. I highly recommend Canyonlands National Park for a really amazing 
visual scenic what, experience. Say that national park again. Canyonlands. Canyonlands. How far north are we from the Grand Canyon here? So it is, it would be about a day's drive to go from the Grand Canyon. You would drive across Monument Valley. Oh, man. And are you talking about Zion? You're you're skipping Zion? Zion Zion is in the area. You would have to go to get to Zion. You'd have to cross the river and go up that way. Yeah. Um, In in order to, uh, and you kind of go because the Grand Canyon's in the way. Oh, so you I have see. To go, you yeah. have to go around. You either go around to the west or to the Jeez. east. Wow. And so, or you can walk across the Grand Canyon if you want to do it that way. But you yeah. go, um, you go northeast out of the Grand Canyon area through Monument Valley into southeastern Utah. Okay. In Canyonlands National Park territory. And, and of course, okay. all of all of that stuff is amazing. That Arches is right around there too. I think Arches is right next door. To yeah. Canyonlands. Wow. Yeah. So that that's usually where I take my students. Um, to see a, uh, a good version of the Great Basin, you know, if you if you consider the um, Four Corners Desert area part of the Great Basin Desert, which some geographers and ecologists would quibble with me on that, that's the way I'm going to do it. Then it turns out that the the Four Corners area is the most diverse part of the Great Basin Desert. Mm. There's all these little nooks and crannies in the canyons that have unique species found nowhere else. And uh-huh. so, especially for plants, for plant uh, endemism, for pl- uh, plants found nowhere else, the Four Corners Canyonlands country is where the Great Basin Desert reaches its, you know, most diverse plants. And it turns out the, you know, most of the animals of the Great Basin are found like in the central part of Nevada, places like that. There are unique animals to the Great Basin. So it's like this weird desert where the the center of uh, diversity for the plants is in a different place from the center of diversity for the animals. If that makes any. Sense. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. It's kind of schizophrenic in that. That is weird. That is. And weird. again, it, it just makes it kind of more interesting. Uh-huh. And when you think, it's like, wait, why would that be? So you know, let you ask more questions. But yeah, if you want to see the Great Basin and a lot of scenery, you'll still see plenty of animals. I'm not saying it doesn't have any unique animals. It's got some, just not as many as some of the other parts of the Great Basin Desert. And, uh, you know, the Canyonlands are the place to go. Okay. I got that on my list here. All right. So we're in the Canyonlands. I'm going to hit up arches while I'm around here. So. Yeah, definitely. Check. You got to see the arches. I, I want to I plug one little cool thing um, that I've got in my book that everybody's going to want to read. Because there's <laughs> the arches, since you brought it up. I didn't bring it up. Uh, <laughs> the, the arches, there's this incredible arch in Arches National Park. It's my favorite called Landscape Arch. And in 1991, tourists were there when Landscape Arch almost completely collapsed and became even skinnier. And, you know, there's this, there's this arch at Arches National Park that is called Delicate Arch that is the most famous one. It's all on their um, license plates, you name it. And it's not as delicate as Landscape Arch. Landscape Arch is this enormous span that is like a thread. That's how thin it is. And it's going to collapse any dime. And there were tourists there in 1991 that saw it almost completely collapse and become even skinnier. And somebody got video of this happening. Wow. And somebody took pictures. And I contacted some of the people who were there. That's amazing. And I got the story. And it's going to be in my book. Cool. And the pictures are going to be in my book. Wow. So you, and wait for that. I've already written it. It's, a, it's awesome. 
so look forward to that. But before we get off topic too much, do we want to turn west? Okay, wait, wait, hold on. So we got all right, before we decide where we want to go from yeah. from here, I'm hitting up arches, I'm checking it out, you know, Black Ridge Canyon around there. I can go up to Dinosaur National Monument, which is great. I don't think that's a desert though. Where yeah, where are we going of, from here? Are we going yeah, northwest or just straight west? I would go go west any way you can if you want to find the next desert. Uh, you're going to be in the Great Basin Desert and some kind of more upland, uh, semi-desert stuff for a long time. Drive drive across Utah. Uh, you're heading to California. Oh, great. To We're going to Cal- that he- California way. Ha- heading to the, the little desert that Californians are so proud of, and for good reason. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, the Mojave is kind of the classic American desert. It's been in yeah. every movie you've ever seen. It's on the cover of u2's most famous album the joshua tree oh yeah and and this is the land of the joshua tree the mojave desert it's it's pretty much you know um classic american desert only found in in the united states you know you could argue that the great basin desert extends partially into canada that would be a tough argument to make the great basin desert is kind of truly american too but the chihuahuan is definitely not all american right it's you know three fourths Mexican Sonoran Desert same thing, but Mojave is completely contained within the United States in in California, and and kind of northeast uh, northwesternmost Arizona and southernmost Nevada, a very dry desert in most places, a lot of creosote, um, and it's got a, a what makes it unique, what makes all these deserts that I've been talking about unique is their unique climate. Each one is a slightly different climate, which is why there's so many plants and animals restricted to it. And there's something we haven't talked about yet, but I can explain it in two seconds. So there's this basic gradient of climate from west to east, where the deserts, the Mojave Desert, gets most of its rainfall in the winter. Mm-hmm. The Sonoran Desert gets most of its rainfall in the winter and then in summer. Mm. So it's got two rain seasons. The Sonoran Desert, which is one of the reasons why it's so lush and why it can support big trees. The Chihuahua Desert, where we are, gets most of its rain in the summer. Summer thunderstorms, nowhere else. Yeah. Great Basin gets most of its precipitation uh, during the winter as snow. And so each one has this unique kind of climatic complexion that gives it all of its unique attributes. And so the winter rain of the Mojave Desert is why you find so many plants uh, and animals restricted to that one little spot where that climatic pattern prevails. And the Joshua tree is the emblem of the Mojave. It's, the, it's restricted to the Mojave. Many people, if you wanted to map the Mojave Desert, you just draw a boundary around where the Joshua tree lives. And that's the boundary of the Mojave Desert. All right. Well, there we go. Man, okay. So we're in the Mojave. We're seeing the smog from uh, L.A. Yeah. in the distance. Well, you know, the Mojave... The Mojave is so far away. It's just far enough away. There's, it's great. There's mountain ranges between LA and the Mojave. Oh yeah, so that's while, right. There so are. Yeah, you absolutely. You can absolutely get to the Mojave in like two and a half hours from LA. There's that but, one stretch of road that yeah. is uh, that that literally, if you don't have a full tank, like exactly. you're done. You're completely I was done. Just about to say that. Oh yeah, you're go, two and go ahead. Two half hours away from you're two and a half hours away from Los Angeles, and yet. There are very few places in the U.S. where I've ever been where I felt like I would I could die because <laughs> yeah. I ran out of gas. Right. 
And it's not just because all the weirdos who live out in little hobbles in the desert, because they're out there too. Mm-hmm. But it's because it's super remote. And, you know, all the services you're expecting, because it's California, forget about it. Yeah. There's stretches oh, yeah. of highway there that go on, and, and there are no services. And it's a, and I love that about the Mojave Desert, where we're talking about the place you should visit is Mojave National Preserve. It's not really a national park. It's this enormous protected area. Uh, national preserves are run by, you know, the Department of Interior, the Park Services, but they're slightly different in, you know, uh, the amount of things you can do and the amount of um, services that are, are there from the Park Service. And so in many ways, the, the Mojave National Preserve is kind of cool because it's not a national park. <laughs> I love the national parks, but, you know, you can't just drop your tent anywhere in a national park nope. and drive off on some <laughs> dirt road without expecting you know the fuzz to come and 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 hassle you and these national preserves it's a little bit like the wild west the roads are terrible they're not taken care of and it's wild and there's no services and the man is not going to come and arouse you from your tent in the middle of the night the man is nowhere to be found Uh, and in that way it's kind of cool um (laughs) i love it so mojave national preserve there's joshua trees everywhere beautiful all the, you know, from the lowest elevation stuff where you don't find any vegetation up to, you know, uh, 4,000 feet where of the foothills where there's just giant Joshua trees everywhere and nobody's around. Uh, it's just great. It's a wonderful place. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, we need to take a quick commercial break, but we're still cruising right along here. Yeah, we still got one stop. One stop left to make, and it it might surprise you where we're going next. Okay, cool. Can't wait. We'll see you right after the break. All right, everybody. We are back. We are packed up. We have just visited. uh, Run us through the whole list real quick. Where where have we gone so far? We we started in New Orleans and went all the way across to the Chihuahuan (laughs) Desert. (laughs) Chihuahuan Desert in West Texas and Mexico, Sonoran Desert in the Tucson area. We went up to the Grand Canyon because you can't miss that. And we, we touched on the kind of southern, southeasternmost tip of the Great Basin Desert in uh, southeastern Utah. Took a direct western beeline over to the Mojave Desert, California. And, you know, a lot of people, if you look at a lot of your textbooks, some of the older literature on the North American deserts, uh, some, some of our listeners might be thinking, oh, well, they're done. There's four North American deserts and they're going home. But I'm afraid uh, you got you got a, a wild place left to see if you really want to experience the, the North American desert. And I'm here to, to reveal something that um, most many ecologists and, and, and my book will be the first to do this are, are actually recognizing five North American deserts now, not four. So five. There's there's one left. And uh, so you're in a good place. If you're in the Mojave Desert, California, you're in a good place. You're going to head south. South. You go south. Head due south, and you're gonna you're gonna find the border. You're gonna whip out there. the passport again. Get that passport out, and you're gonna go all the way down the length of California. You're gonna cross the border. You're gonna keep going down the bottom of California, the bottom of California, what we call Baja California. Oh, Baja. Which literally <laughs> means more or less the bottom of California. Right. So, yeah. 
and is that that's that's uh it, the Baja California geologically until recently was an island. It was it rifted off part of Baja California rifted off Mexican mainland and was drifting because of the San Andreas Fault, that whole thing. Oh right, northwest, yeah. uh off by itself, a big set of islands, maybe for five million years, just off by itself, isolated, and only recently reconnected to the mainland, um, you know, thousand miles northwest to California. And so the and it's probably been dry and very desert like for a large portion of that time that it was in isolation. And so people have looked at uh, the flora and fauna of the Baja Peninsula and said, hell no, because traditionally it's been considered part of the Sonoran Desert mm. since the since the uh, kind of the dude who defined the North American deserts back in 1942, Forrest Shreve. Forrest Shreve is the godfather of desert rats. And he defined these deserts basically based on the plant growth habits that, that live in these different deserts mm. back back in the 40s. And he said, look, there's places where there's giant tree yuccas. That's the Mojave Desert. Yeah. There's this cold desert with low shrubs, this great basin. There's the Chihuahua Desert that mostly has a bunch of small agaves and some other shrubs like Lechuguilla. That's the Chihuahua. The Sonoran Desert got tree cactus. So that's what we're going to call the Sonoran. And where do tree cacti grow? Southern Arizona and Baja California. Oh, Baja, Baja. Baja California has enormous tree cacti, among other things. It's got a tree cactus that's bigger than the saguaro, the largest cactus in the world, called the Cardone. It's also got incredibly weird things, like this tree called the Bujum, which is just a, a it's a it's a relative of the Ocotillo, which most of our listeners have heard of. Oh yeah, um, but it's even weirder. And if you thought Ocotillos were weird, and if you love Ocotillos because they're weird, you're going to love the Bujum because it's like a giant carrot that can be 70 feet tall, covered with spines that can often grow in weird, twisty, twirly growth forms. It's unbelievable. It's like looking at an alien it's like planet. A, it's like a real national mo- monument or something. It, it, it's, it's just bizarre. And it's more or less uh, only found in Baja California. There's one small colony that managed to get to the coast of Sonora um, that grows in the desert uh, across the, the Sea of Cortez. Yeah. So it's a really interesting place. And, you know, our modern understanding suggests that it's been there isolated, living on, and all the plants have been kind of evolving on their own for, for millions of years. And only recently has it become in close enough proximity to the rest of North America that there's been kind of these exchanges, things have been moving. And so even the Bujum, this crazy, bizarre, giant carrot tree, yeah. has recently migrated uh, to the coast of Sonora, just one little spot. And that's just enough to have kind of mixed things together to where Forest Shreve would have looked at that and said, oh, it's one big desert. But in fact, no, the, the Baja Peninsula desert probably should be considered its own thing. It's it's unique enough, and a lot of the uh, you know attributes of the Sonoran Desert that people talk about that it's got the most diverse growth forms of plants of any of the deserts. It's got tree cactus, it's got spiny leafless trees, it's got big uh, bottle trees that have huge swollen bases. It's got the bujum, which grows nowhere else. Uh, they say these things are unique to the Sonoran Desert. What they really mean is it's unique to Baja Desert. Because mm. Baja Desert actually has that unique, uh, you know, span of growth habits of plants 
The Sonoran Desert in Arizona and Sonora really doesn't. It doesn't have as many. That's, when you say that, you're really saying that about the Baja Desert. It's got the unique stuff, and it turns out uh, many of the plants and animals that live there aren't closely related to the ones that live in the Sonoran Desert proper, the one that I'm calling the Sonoran Desert, the one that's only in Arizona and in Sonora. Their closest relatives aren't across the Sea of Cortez. Their mm. closest relatives, turn out, live in the Chihuahuan Desert. Mm. Yeah. Really? So okay. Yes. Yeah, if you look at the history of it, what, what that suggests is that the deserts of North America, the hot deserts, probably had most of their history, most of their evolution in Mexico. Um, during the Ice Ages, most of those plants and animals would have been pushed farther south and would have been living in central Mexico if, you know, and, and that's where they were surviving, these kind of climate refugia. And then whenever the climate became dry in North America, when the ice sheets retreated back up to Canada, uh, those plants and animals would have kind of migrated out north. Yeah. And they probably did so from climatic refugia in the Chihuahuan Desert and in the southern Sonora area. And it turns out that, you know, Baja California, be, when it used to be positioned farther south, connected to the mainland before it rifted off and became an island, it was probably in pretty close proximity to the southern Chihuahua Desert yeah, rather wow. than Sonora. And the, so there's this interesting pattern where Sonora and, and, and Arizona are kind of off on their own. In Chihuahua, the Chihuahua Desert and the Baja Peninsula share a lot in common. And if, if look, if, if your stuff in the Baja Peninsula is more closely related to the stuff in Chihuahua than it is to the Sonoran Desert, there's no way it's related to the Sonoran Desert. Yeah. So it's its own thing. It's definitely its own thing. Interesting. So it's, it's, it's our kind of modern genetic understanding of what, what's related to what that's kind of led to recognition of this Baja Peninsula as a unique place. And it really shouldn't be considered part of the Sonoran Desert. Yeah, because the, the Sea of Cortez or the Gulf of California, same thing, right? Um, yeah. It, it's far enough away from everything, or it's, it's large enough, right? to keep these two land masses far enough away from everything that things start changing that like even molecular, like they might look the similar, like the plants and animals, but they're actually the biology of them are very, very different. Right. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. And it's, and it's no, yeah, it's kind of like that. And it's no knock on Forrest Shreve, you know, he, he didn't have all of these, this evidence back in the 1940s. And so he did a really great job in many cases his definitions and his boundaries of the deserts have, have stood the test of time and have, have been reinforced by modern evidence, except in this one case. In this one case, I think the fact that there were giant tree cactus growing in both places, in many cases, the same species in yeah. both areas. You know, organ pipe cactus grows in the, both the Baja Peninsula and the Sonoran Desert. So it, they, there are some plants that they share in common just like there are plants that the Sonoran Desert shares with the Chihuahuan Desert. Yeah. But actually, I crunched some numbers, and it turns out that based on the evidence that I can gather, the, there's more species in common between the Sonoran Desert and the Mojave Desert than there are between the Sonoran Desert and the Baja Desert. Wow. Interesting. So, by you know by that, that logic weird huh? you could easily you could easily just take the mojave desert which most people are familiar with and, yeah. and have you know it's been around since corn shreve defined it for nearly 100 years now and you could just as easily pair it and say no that's just a subdivision of the sonora desert interesting 
you know? Huh. So that's, yeah. So that's one of the cool things that, you know, I've been, nobody's done like a huge analysis of this. That's the crazy thing. Nobody's just taken all the plants throughout the North American deserts and, and done a big unbiased statistical analysis to see where the centers of origin, the centers of diversity are. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> There's little pieces of information across many papers. You know, people will do, they've done a comparison like that, but it was restricted to the Southwestern U.S., didn't have any data from Mexico. Or there's a paper that did that, and it only looked at the hot deserts and didn't look at the Great Basin cold desert at the same time. Yeah. So it's all this piecemeal stuff, and I'm trying to wade through it all right now. And, you know, I guess what, I, what you can expect from me next year will be a, uh, a distillation of all of that information into something that our fans can read. That'd be great. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, we are, we are just about uh, out of time, but before we head out, uh, that, that's a really good, you know, something for us to look forward to is you kind of bathing in all this information and turning it into something legible to where we can all read before we head out. Uh, is this going to be more of an academic book or is it going to be more something for, no. for, no. for lame, like layman's like me that are really yeah, just yeah. interested, like love nerding out on stuff like that. Yeah. I think it, no, all anything I've ever written. I, if, if, if a lay person can't read it, I've failed. Like that's oh, my, right. I, that's what I want my niche to be is to be able to write about stuff. In fact, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in here to get you through. If it ever gets super technical, like, you know, we might've gotten the weeds here with our conversation just now a little bit too much, might've got too technical, but there's always going to be some, you know, mention of a scrotum there to keep you going. <laughs> there you go. You know, there, there's going to be stories. There's stories. There's <laughs> desert lore. Yeah. You know, I talk about, I talk about the greatest rock and roll death of all time happened in outside of Joshua tree national park. That's in there. Yeah. So there's enough, enough stuff like that. Little, little stories uh, about desert lore and my experiences in the desert that hopefully, you know, if you, if you get my station wagon and, and go on this voyage with me, yeah. uh, starting in new Orleans and heading West, yep. you'll get through it and you'll come out with a, a pretty good understanding of our deserts. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that, Hey, thank you so much. Great episode. Looking forward to the next science nights in the morning. Thank you all for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.